Hey, good morning. Welcome to Church in the Mall. Welcome home. Just some quick housekeeping before we get started. Our event uh, of meeting in the park today has in fact been canceled uh, due to the coronavirus and we will not be having any more outdoor gatherings for the month of August uh, for the same reason. We want to keep people as safe as possible. Do be looking for a video in the upcoming weeks though as we help to inform you about plans for the fall and how we can gather as a church community. Hey, in the meantime, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Hopefully you've been following along in the reading guide. Uh, you've covered Acts chapters 12, verses 25, all the way through 15. And we're going to be looking at Paul's very first missionary journey. So check it out on this map. Paul begins here. He works his way over to Cyprus. He's with Barnabas, and Barnabas is from this area. And so it makes sense that they continue their journey over here to a familiar place. Then they work their way up to another Antioch in Poseidon, over to Iconium, Lystra, Derby. This is the bigger area of Asia and South Asia. Um, we're going to work our way back, and as they do, they're going to start running into some challenges. You can read about those in the following chapters, but what I want to focus on most importantly is chapter 15, because the challenge they meet here is an issue that helps define not only the church, but our Christian understanding from here all the way until eternity. So let us begin in the word of God here and see what God has in store. Let me begin with this quick question though. What does it mean to have unity in the church? Can there even be unity? What about when we differ on our understanding and interpretation of scripture or how we're supposed to live our lives? What if some of us in Christ have found great freedoms and we know that because of Christ we've been forgiven and we live into great freedoms that sometimes can become barriers for people that just can't? Well, today we're going to be looking at those exact topics and issues. And we're going to be looking at it as what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and how we should be looking at how we can surrender and even give up our own rights and opinions and ideas for the sake of the gospel in order to love God and love others. So let's begin in chapter 15. In verse 1, it says their peace was disrupted. The church has been growing. Things have been happening. Gentiles and Jews have been coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but now something is going awry. Certain Judeans have come down into this area to begin their new teaching, which is simply this. Unless you are circumcised according to Mosaic custom, you cannot be saved. Now, this group of Judeans are Jews from Judea that are coming in saying, listen, we've been taught our whole lives the importance of Moses and how God chose him to deliver our people from Pharaoh and Egypt, that he is the image of the coming savior. Now, we know we've found our hope in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of that, God's true Savior. But you're talking about over 1,500 years of cultural understanding that Moses and the law of Moses are to be followed by every Jew. And when we think of the law of circumcision and we think about how Moses talked about that as being one of the most important things, for 1,500 years we've known that, believed it, and lived by it. In fact, all of us have been circumcised. You know, if we were to go even farther back in our own tradition and understanding, we would see that God spoke to Abraham 2,000 years before that. We're talking 3,500 years of God saying, circumcise yourself to show me that you are my children and my people. So, 
you're telling me that you're going to let all these new people in, these Gentiles, people that we were told made us unclean if we even hung out with, and that they don't have to follow any of these traditions? I'm really confused. So no wonder they come in preaching this new understanding of salvation. Unless you're circumcised according to Mosaic custom, you cannot be saved. <clears throat> now, although I fully understand why they have this thought process, it's really bad theology. And Paul and Barnabas are going to spend a good part of this chapter arguing against it. They're going to say it doesn't work that way. The grace that God has extended you and I to become children of the living God, to stand in the glory and the presence of God, isn't because of something we've done or something we've earned or something we've followed. It's simply grace given to us by faith. The very fact that you and I trust that this person of Jesus from Nazareth is more than just a man, he is God in flesh, that he was here to give his life for you and I so that we have the ultimate Savior. It's grace given to us through faith. And Paul and Barnabas will argue this over and over. But for whatever reason, it doesn't get resolved here. So they travel all the way back to Jerusalem, to the original church. And they begin talking with all the church fathers about how can we best understand this? Do we need to make every Gentile go back and become Jewish? Or can we move forward in what the Spirit is doing and accept grace given to us by faith in Jesus alone, without any customs, traditions, or cultural pieces? And so as they're debating this, the challenge arises that as these new converts who are outside of the Jewish tradition, outside of the Jewish faith, called Gentiles, as they begin moving into the synagogues with their newfound faith in Jesus, and these new churches that are made up of Jews who grew up in the Jewish culture that have accepted Christ, instead of merging together as one church, they begin butting heads. You see, what the Gentiles are doing is very offensive to the Jews, and what the Jews are doing is very offensive to the Gentiles, and so we have a major problem. Now, at this point, the church could have had its very first split, but it doesn't. What ends up happening is a group of people, both liberal and conservative and moderate, come together to say, how can we move forward in the grace that is given us through Jesus Christ? How can we best interpret the scriptures? And so they argue back and forth and they say, look, if we turn the Gentiles loose into this new freedom in Christ, their freedom becomes a stumbling block for all the Jews who have found such great hope in their traditions because every one of those traditions and cultures and scriptures points to the coming of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we don't want to do that. But we also don't want the Jewish cultures to become a stumbling block for the Gentiles and the only way in which they can be accepted. So, here's our compromise. The Gentiles will be encouraged to experience their newfound freedom. However, there are four specific things I want them to adhere to so that they don't use their freedom in the wrong way and end up hurting some of our Jewish Christians who are wrestling with understanding their faith. Now, what I love about this is Peter and Peter's more of kind of maybe the moderate. Paul is definitely more liberal in how he thinks. But James, who is one of the church fathers, is definitely more conservative, at least when it comes to Judaism. You see, James is one of the most pious Jewish followers there is, although he has, in fact, accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. He's one of the early leaders in the church, and it's James who stands up and makes this claim before everyone. He said, here's my counsel. This is chapter 15, verse 19. 
we all should not burden these outsiders, these Gentiles, who are turning to God. We should instead write a letter instructing them to abstain from four things. Remember those freedoms we talked about? Well, there's four things that Gentiles often did in their worship of false idols that was very off-putting to the Jews. And even though they are set free in Christ, these things don't always work well for the Jews. And so what James is going to do here is he's going to ask the Gentiles to forego and put aside some of their freedoms in Christ in order to not cause a stumbling block for the Jews who are coming to faith in Christ. It's very interesting, isn't it? The gospel always demands a lot. The question is, are we willing to give up our lives and take up our crosses in order to follow it? So here are the four things. First, things associated with idols and worship, we need to get rid of them. Second, sexual immorality, which makes perfect sense since that was such a big way in which they worshiped. In fact, when Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Corinth is worshiping Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love, and they do so through sexual acts. So it makes sense that these things are all tied to this idea of false worship. Third, food killed by strangling and blood, fourth blood. The idea here is that as they would celebrate and sacrifice to these false gods, they would take animals and they would strangle them and they would pour out their blood and they would make a big show of all this. But for Jews, blood becomes the life force that God puts inside of every human being. They know that blood can also make us unclean, but it can also make us clean, such as in a sacrificial act. And so these are not things to be taken lightly or misused. And so for these new Gentile converts to fully embrace what it is to be a follower of Christ, these are four things they're going to have to let go of their past and their culture. Now, it's hard to let go of our past and our culture at times. Even for you and I, there are things that we probably differ on in what we believe and understand, even about the very scriptures. There are things that we were taught, things that we experienced, things that we read, um, sometimes even life experiences that help form and shape us. And sometimes it can be very difficult when we come together with other believers that come from a different cultural background, a different belief, a different understanding, a different political view, a different lifestyle. But the reality is we can still find wholeness in Christ. But let us be careful that we don't misuse our freedoms and cause others to stumble. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul will have this huge conversation with a group of new Christian Gentiles who are saying, wait a minute, now that we've become believers in Christ, are we allowed to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? You see, every week when all the sacrifices would go out to the idols, the next day the meat would show up in the marketplace and it was cheap. And people that didn't have their own meat or their own animals to provide meat would often go there and buy it. They would serve it at their meals, their weddings, their parties. And so as these new people are coming to faith in Christ, they're asking Paul a very serious question. If I eat that meat that was used for idol worship, will I be tainted? Will I fall short in my commitment to Christ? And so what Paul says is very simple. He says, look, your freedom allows you to do anything you want, but be careful that you don't abuse your freedom or abuse God or others with it. In other words, love God, love others. So what he says is this. If you can buy the meat for cheap and you can use it, by all means do it. But if you're going to serve that meat to somebody and it's going to cause them to think back of the lifestyle they came out of, and that's something they want to escape and not return to, 
then you might be causing a stumbling block for them. And so Paul is challenging this same idea that's being challenged in Acts 15. It's about are we willing to give up our freedoms, our rights, and our preferences, the things that we hold so dear in order to help others grow in their faith. You know, right now you and I can't meet together in large church worship. And believe me, it breaks my heart. Ever since I was little, I would go to church on Sundays. It, it's what we did. It's who I am. But what happens when you take away something that makes me who I am? Well, the truth is I'm not any less than who I was, but it is causing me to think differently. There are lots of opportunities for us to think differently. I love hearing the stories of what's going on in our small groups as people with different political views, uh, different cultural backgrounds, uh, different preferences, or, or even different understandings of certain scriptures come together to discuss and debate and talk that together we can work out our faith in fear and trembling like the scriptures talk to us about. But what I love most of all is that nobody is abusing their freedom in Christ. They're not using their faith and their understanding to attack and tear down others. Rather, they're using it to build them up. So in an instance where perhaps our freedoms might get in the way of others, we're using great caution because our goal is to love God and love others. Now, the question for us this week is, who do you need to step aside for? What beliefs or political views are being expressed in your circle of friends or, or maybe at work or online that maybe you just need to step aside of your own freedoms in order to love God and love others? What things in your life are standing as roadblocks for other people? Are there things that you found great freedom in? I always think of the story of my dear friend who loves bourbon. And he says, man, I just enjoy it so much. But I have another friend who I love even more than the bourbon. And when he comes over, he's a recovering alcoholic. And so I put away the bourbon because I don't want to cause him to stumble. Now, as a Christian, a believer in Christ, as someone who simply loves bourbon, there's nothing wrong with having a bourbon. But I don't want to cause my friend to stumble. So. I put it away and I offer him a Coke instead. My friends, what a great example of how we love God and love others. But what happens when we take it to a deeper level? When we discuss politics, when we discuss the coronavirus, when we discuss our own views and opinions on things, we have to be careful that our freedoms don't step on other people and cause them to stumble in their own faith. Instead, let us be encouragers of the word and the gospel and the peace of Christ Jesus. May it be so with us this week. Grab your communion elements. I want to share this time with you as we get to experience something that is so unifying in the church. These are my elements today. I've got a, a cracker and I've got the cup here that's filled with water. You can use juice or whatever it is you can find around your home. But as we gather these elements, we take this time to celebrate who we are in Christ that the identity you and I have is not in our culture nor our belief, but in the person of Jesus Christ and who he says we are, his children, children of the living God. So my friends, let us pray and then let us enjoy communion together. Lord, as we come together, would you consecrate these elements for your purpose as we accept the idea of your son being our savior. As we look forward in faith to everything that he's done for us, we know full well that through him, we have received eternal life, both here and now and in the world to come. We are now participants in the kingdom of God, laying down our own lives for the betterment of others. 
making sure not to abuse our freedoms and our understandings, our opinions and our beliefs, but able to suspend them, not to disagree, but simply to say, God, we are willing to love you and love others. So Lord, come now and meet us in this moment. Allow us to commune together as one church, one body, in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. As we take the cracker, we're reminded of Christ's body broken for us. Go ahead and take whatever element you have brought, break it, and as you taste it, I want you to think about how God has broken himself for us and in what ways do we have an opportunity to break ourselves for others. As the scriptures say, there's no greater love than this, than he who gave up his life or laid it down for the sake of another. In the same way Christ laid down his life for you and I. As we drink the cup, we're reminded of the liquid as a metaphor for the blood of Christ being shed for you and I. Out of the Jewish principle of shedding the blood of the lamb in order to take away the sins of the people, this is the ultimate shedding of the blood, the ultimate removal of sins from all people everywhere. That as you and I drink this cup, we're celebrating what Christ has done for you and me. He's removed our guilt, our shame, and our sins so that you and I can stand holy and set apart before a holy God. Taste and see that God is good. My friends, this concludes our time together. Would you go forth in the peace of Christ knowing that you are beloved children of God? I look forward to seeing you this week. You're going to see more videos on Monday and Wednesday.